0: Well, I'm going to go ahead and, well, I guess before we begin, just, um, thanks for being here and, and thanks for joining us for this journey in Ephesians. Um, it is, we're winding down. Um, I, um, thought we would finish tonight. I, I was really intending to finish tonight when we ended last week, because we're at the whole armor of God. We, we got all the way up to, to the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and I told you we were going to do that for tonight, but this week, as I've dwelled on this, I really, well, first of all, I I feel like we could do it. Talk about the sword of the spirit as the word of God, and that would be fine. But there's so much connotation that comes with the sword that I felt like I would try to work on that. And then I would regret not staying on it longer. I, f- I felt like I'd get to the end and think you brushed aside what really can't be brushed aside in this because it's the only offensive weapon we get in this whole armor series. So I'm going to do the sword of the spirit tonight. And then next week we're going to do the word of God. But I, I know that you know they're linked. Paul links them, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Um, so knowing that you know that, I'm not going to worry too much at the top of this lesson tonight about trying to link the two because you know we're on the way to that, okay? And I'm saying that up front to someone watching that hears us talking about the sword. Doesn't this guy know it's the Word of God? Yes. Yes, it's the Word of God. That will be made very clear, as clear as possible in this next verse. But um, there's so much baggage with the sword. There's a lot of weight that comes with it. And with that in mind, I'd like to work on it a little bit tonight. So we're going to talk about the sword of the spirit. And this is, again, the only offensive weapon that we are afforded in this journey. And we want to figure out what Jesus would do on offense in regards to the sword. At the same time, next week, we do the word of God. We'll have this sort of gracious ending that Paul taxed at the backside of Ephesians. So we're going to cover the word of God and the ending of the letter. I don't want to do a whole week on the ending of the letter. It's, it's, some of it's formality. It's kind of ease our way out. So, So that's just to let you know that we'll have 32 lessons on Ephesians. Tonight's number 31. Then we're going to do a little bit of an unusual move and we're going to have a, a little bit of a buffer week in between where we are and where we're going. And we're going to go into... Unless something dramatically changes in the next couple of weeks, I want to go into the Old Testament book of Ruth, and I want to do some work on that book in regards to its context, time, place, and setting, and of course, as a um, a little hidden gem about Jesus, because that's what we, if you're going to go into the Old Testament, you, we're, we're Christians, we're looking for Jesus, we're Christ followers, so go into the Old Testament, we look for Christ. Okay. And so that's what we're going to do in the book of Ruth. It's not a long book, but we'll be here a few weeks on it because there's a lot to say. And I want to try to say it the best way that I can. The reason I say I'm going to do a buffer week is I have a word of my spirit that I'm working on that I want to release to the audience at large. And I wanted to do that with this group. So uh, two weeks from tonight, I will do a sermon more of a little more of a sermon testimonial than a regular lesson. We'll record that. We'll put that up as a weekend message for our online audience. But that night we're going to do two recordings, but it's not going to be a long night. Trust me. We're going to open with an intro to Ruth. I'll put myself on the clock. We'll do a 10 or 12 minute intro to Ruth. And then I want to share a word that's on my heart. So it'll be one of the, it'll be a little bit of a different kind of night that's in two weeks from tonight. um, That sort of bridges us into the next series, but also lets me release something that um, has, has been growing in me that I'd like to get out there. So um, that's our layout for the next few weeks. And then you know where we're going into the fall with the little book of Ruth. Um, and I say that in advance for those who've been following along in the Ephesians study. Uh, in real time, you'll know, and those who follow later, way down the road, um, you'll, you'll know that Ruth follows this. And the intro to Ruth will be that bridge week in between those two. Okay? Um, Sword of the Spirit. Let's start with the one verse from Ephesians 6. And I'll give you this as a heads up. This is the one verse that we're going to read from our studies in Ephesians that's actually in the book of Ephesians tonight. Ephesians chapter six and verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We actually, I think read this last week. I know we did as part of the whole armor of God. Um, I wanted to put it up because I want to show you that connection, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Very unambiguously, Paul lays out that the sword of the spirit is one thing, not 12 things, not possibility of being a couple dozen things, but it is the word of God. Next week, we'll get into the details of what that phrase means. We push it aside tonight to go to work on the sword, and we'll also work on the fact that it's the sword of the Spirit. But let's do one linking verse, shall we, that links those two thoughts together that will also be sort of a launch point for next week, and it's the verse you know the best in regards to the word and in regards to the sword. Here's your other New Testament verse that brings those two things into the same conversation. The word of God is living. This is Hebrews 4.12. Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And, And technically, inside, couched inside of the Hebrews context, uh, this is the word of the promise of God, the promise of God's rest that has been delivered to the people of God. For if you're reading the in, the body of Hebrews 4, you'll see that this is the God that ceased from his own works. And if you enter into his rest, you cease from your works as he ceased from his. And then the word of God is quick, sharp, more powerful than a two-edged sword. What word? Well, not this necessarily, but the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is like a sword. And so we're in a land Tonight, on that sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, because those two are one and the same. Okay. All of that pushed aside to really deal with the idea of the sword. Um, I want to start from the early part of the Bible, and then we'll do some little leapfrogging as we head up towards the end of the Bible. We're literally going to go cover to cover tonight. That's not scary. We're not going to be there long in each spot, but we will go Genesis to Revelation, trying to get to the bottom of this thing. Let's start with a hermeneutical tool. And uh, I don't want to argue too positive or negative for this, but I do want to bring it up. And that's called the law first mention. Um, In in hermeneutical studies, you will often hear people talk about the law first mention as a interpretive device for the literature of the Bible, meaning... That if a word surf- when a word comes up for the first time, how it is used becomes the template for how it is interpreted throughout the text. Um, that is not a universally thought of way of interpreting scripture. However, I, I want to bring that up because I've used that phrase in the past. The law of first mention um, even put it in some of my early writing. Um, However, I want to be very clear that it's only called the law first mentioned because someone turned it into a law. It's not as if there's a scripture in the Bible that says thou shalt interpret words throughout the text exactly as thou sawest them the first time thou sawest them, which is a wordy way of saying um, there's not a verse in the Bible that tells you there's a law first mentioned. Um, Now that doesn't mean it's not worth thinking about, okay, which is what we're going to do tonight, but um, it doesn't always work. Like for instance, um, if you were to take the, the first mention of the word day, you wouldn't have a 24 hour period because there's a day before there's a sun. There's not a sun until day four. So what happens on day one? Um, well, you can, if you interpret day as being just the time when the sun is up, then you wouldn't have 24 hours as a day throughout the word. And we know that that word actually has a lot of meanings throughout the Bible. So we can't just land on the law first mention and then just cancel everything else out. Okay, so what could we do? Well, we can, we can bring it up. We can look at it and say, here's what it meant back here. Maybe that's what it means here. Maybe that's what it means here. I think we can do better. And that is we can realize that the Bible is man encountering God progressively. And so I do think there's such thing as progressive revelation that happens in the word in which the authors that are laying down these principles and these ideas are seeing things differently. They're seeing things through new eyes and they're not saying things the exact same way. They're advancing the the idea. You've heard one that I love to use is, is that there's a snake in the garden of Eden and then there's snakes in the wilderness that bite the children of Israel and they're a problem The snake that was crafty and slick in Eden becomes venomous and slithering in the wilderness. And it's still attacking God's people. It's it's attacking the mind of Eve, and then it's attacking the bodies of Israel. And, And then you put a snake on a pole. And Jesus says, if I'm lifted up like the snake in the wilderness. And so then the snake becomes the picture of the thing that is cursed. And you get to Revelation, and you get a dragon with seven heads coming up out of the ocean, and it's referred to as that old serpent. And so here you've got a snake that grows all the way into a dragon. This is kind of an an understanding of how words progress across the text, that they start meaning one thing, and then they expand in their meanings because people are injecting ideas into those words. They're projecting thoughts into those words, and so they become something bigger. For instance, the Hebrews did it, um, with, with the idea of an adversary, an accuser. Um, they use the Hebrew phrase ha ha-satan, H-A-S-A-T-A-N, two words, the Satan. And the Satan in the first usage in the Bible shows up as an angel of the Lord that stands in front of Balaam and dissuades him from cursing the children of Israel. And the Bible calls it an angel of the Lord that stood as an adversary, but in the Hebrew it calls it an angel of the Lord that stood as Hasatan, the angel of the Lord that was the Satan that stood in the way, but the English doesn't translate it that way. And then as the Bible goes along, he starts to get a name, the Satan. And then as the new Testament comes along, he starts to get another name, the devil. And they're the same thing, but they did he didn't even exist back there. Like nobody called the snake the devil in Genesis 3. We do, but nobody did. You don't have the writer of the book of Genesis going, there was a snake who, by the way, is the devil. But we project onto that snake the qualities of the adversary. Why? Because snakes bite God's people in the wilderness. And what does Hasatan do? He attacks God's people in wildernesses. There's the devil with the Jesus in the wilderness. Here's another snake talking to another Adam in a wilderness, and Jesus will overcome. So that helps that's a better interpretive tool than just blankly the law first mentioned. So watch how the words expand. Watch how they take on new properties. Watch how they pull in the ideas of their writers or the people around them. Okay. We even learned to do this from Jesus himself. We start in Genesis 3.24 with the sword. If we were going to play law first mention, this is first mention. This is the first time the word sword appears in the Bible. Now, that is worth thinking about, but we're going to watch it progress. He drove out the man. This is God driving out Adam and Eve. And he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's a lot of firsts in this verse which makes sense. We're in Genesis. There's going to be a lot of firsts. There's a lot of firsts that become seconds, thirds, and one hundredths in the Bible. Cherubim, trees of life. These are things that pop up over and over and over again. And right in the middle of that is a sword, a flaming sword, nonetheless. The fire will not, it won't take long for fire to be associated with the consuming power of God. You get all the way up to Hebrews and God is a consuming fire. So here's a fire and a sword that stands over the tree of life, turning every which way, guarding the way to the tree of life. And if you take that flaming sword guarding the tree of life and you put together the fact that Adam and Eve were just booted out of Eden and they were booted out for eating from the wrong tree, you have the tree they've consumed and the tree that would save them. But there's a sword guarding the tree that would save them. And it just sort of hangs out there in Genesis 3. There's not really another Description of that. And then Zechariah, way up deep in the Old Testament, says this in Zechariah 13:7. And I know you're familiar with these. I'm using sort of an ABC. Just like knock the dominoes down as you work your way through understanding the sword. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And I've used this verse with you a lot to try and express how I feel that these verses in Zechariah are some of the most overlooked messianic prophetic passion week verses that we have in the old Testament. Zechariah is my personal favorite of the old Testament prophets in regards to the death of Christ. Notice awake. O sword and strike a shepherd. And our English translators have imposed some capital letters there, of course, Shepherd, they capitalized. My, they capitalize. Companion, they capitalized. Because our English translators know that these verses are talking about Jesus. And we know that these verses are talking about Jesus because Jesus told us that they were. In Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Where was it written? Zechariah 13, 7. Although, if you'll notice, Jesus sort of transforms that verse. No longer, he doesn't mention anything about the sword. He doesn't say, awake, O sword, and strike my companion. He says, I will strike the shepherd. And so Jesus puts the sword in the hand of his father, realizing that not that God's about to kill Jesus, but that he is going to strike the shepherd with the same equipment that he guarded the tree of life. This is Jesus linking the sword of the garden to the death of the gardener, the sword of Eden to the death of the shepherd. Therefore, Jesus becomes the shepherd who is smitten by the sword. This is why we can say things like and have good footing for, Jesus affords you access to the tree of life. Jesus pays for the entrance, for the gate to be flung open. So that if you want to eat from the tree of life, you can eat from the tree of life, even though you've ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil your entire lives. You're Adam and Eve, strangers from who God is. You're you're running around the wilderness of this world. And here's Jesus taking the sword, waking it up, that was hanging over the tree of life that was the access point, To the life of God that had been denied because of the fall of man. And Jesus then takes into himself the sword so that all of us can have free passage. And Revelation picks that theme up because in Revelation, there's the, you want to see what the bride looks like. Here comes a city out of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and the gates are open wide to the city. And there's a river flowing through the city. And on each side of the river are trees of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nation. And the gates, Revelation closes with this, her gates shall never be shut so that people can come in and eat from those leaves. And so the Bible opens with the gates slamming shut to Eden and a sword guarding the tree. And it closes with the gates open to a new Eden. And the sword is now with the shepherd because it's already left the tree of life and it's plunged into the shepherd so that his robes are covered in blood. And now if it's ever going to be used again, you're going to get to Revelation the sword's going to come out of the mouth of the only one who has the right to swing the sword. So Jesus redeems the sword by becoming the recipient of the the, the point of the spear. It goes into Christ so that out of Christ can flow rivers of living water. These are all Jesus statements. You're just you're just bringing these imagery, this imagery together. Now, that's a better way, as far as I'm concerned. That's a better interpretive model for what to do with these words and these terms and then to, so that you've then filtered them into and through Jesus. So Jesus makes a link. Jesus links the sword of Eden with the death of the shepherds. I want to take it to the next level here. He links it to the death of the shepherd, seeing the sword as a spiritual instrument. Or here's a word we used last week and the week before, an invisible instrument, right? As opposed to carnal, as opposed to fleshly, as opposed to visible. Jesus makes the sword a spiritual instrument. Swords are used to cut. Ultimately, the cutting that Jesus shows us leads to life, which is not what swords are known for. Swords are not known for life. Swords are known for death. You don't use swords on people to bring them to life. You use swords on people to bring them to death. And the great irony, the sword is above the tree of life. There's a sword, flaming, spinning, every which way, hanging over life, which is wrong. You don't have a sword hanging over life. So Jesus has the sword plunged into the man on the tree so that the sword becomes transformed, so that it becomes an instrument that brings life, not death. He frames his pending death, and he frames our faith in that death as a death represented by the sword. Thus, in the literature of Jesus, in the, in the wording of Jesus, the sword comes to equal the cross. What does he say in Matthew 26? He tells them the sword He doesn't use the word sword. Scratch that. Matthew 26, we just read it. As it is written, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And then he adds this. He says, and then three days later, I'll go before you into Galilee. And so it's Jesus saying the sword is going to smite the shepherd. You guys are all going to run. Three days later, I'll meet you. Three days later, after the sword smites you, how are you going to meet us? Swords kill people. And so Jesus takes that which is supposed to kill, it will, and he shows them that if you'll believe in the one who's being smitten by the sword, I'll live again. I'm going to live on the other side of the sword so that the sword having been plunged into Christ is transformed. Anything and everything that encounters Jesus is transformed. When you go into Christ, you come out of Christ differently. What you put into Jesus gets transformed inside of Jesus. If you plunge Jesus into death, death gets transformed. If you plunge sin into Jesus, sin gets transformed. If you plunge a sword into the shepherd, the sword's in trouble. It doesn't bend and melt. It goes in and it does its job, but then he owns it. It becomes him. In Christ all things consist. Everything's held together in Jesus. So don't enter that black hole. (laughs) Because whatever enters that black hole goes in and it doesn't get to come out the same way. You don't get to meet Jesus and enter into him by faith and just be you. Again, there's something in you that changes. There's transformative power of who he is as all of that goes plunging into Jesus. Okay, now that's, that's Genesis, Zechariah, Matthew. We could do a lot of stuff from the Psalms that like to use the sword as an indication of the power of God, the justice of God. The, the kings and the judges and the Joshua's will exhaust you with the sword. The bloodshed at the hands of men against men becomes a very hyper-violent book. One of the hardest things to read for my money in the Old Testament is Judges in regards to violence. Judges is a book, be careful. It's not just rated R. It's, it's NC-17. Like it's, it's not a book for your children's Sunday school class. You've know, you got to be careful. Because you're watching men who are doing... It literally tells you, the book closes with this, and they did what was right in their own eyes. It's a book full of people doing what's right in their own eyes and calling it God. There's an enormous amount of calling it God, and there's death, dismemberment, rape, genocide, and it's full of, of the worst humanity has to offer. And there's swords. And so, without a doubt... You can link the sword to all the ills of man's violence. It it becomes a full illustration of how bad things can be. The sword does. So that by the time Jesus employs its imagery, and you might be thinking, someone is, well, hey, you quoted Matthew 26, smite the shepherd and the sheep was scattered. Jesus never actually said sword. And you're right, he didn't. He sort of left that out from Zechariah. But I think Matthew, if you paint the whole narrative of Matthew, Matthew wants to show you that Jesus is working to redeem what the sword could look like. Here's an example. Matthew chapter 10. This is 16 chapters in front of smite the Shepherd. And Jesus says this in 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Now if that verse stood by itself and we didn't read any more context, You would have quite a verse to take all the bloodshed of judges, all the bloodshed of the kings, and all the bloodshed from the entire Old Testament canon and say Jesus came to do the exact same thing, which is take the sword that kills. Forget this peace on earth message, you bunch of softies. Here's Jesus ready to spread a sword and kill some people because you've already got the imagery of that. But remember, Jesus is on a mission to take into him whatever's wrong so that he can bring out something new. But he needs to describe what the sword actually does. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So, just staying right there for a moment, Jesus is giving you the first indication of what he thinks the sword looks like. He doesn't say, Don't think I've come to spread peace, I've come to spread a sword, I'm here to slit throats. I'm here to crush skulls. I'm here to disembowel people. None of that. Instead, he turns it from the physical sword to a weird familial split. I mean, he's got fathers against daughter, or a son against father, a daughter against her mom, a daughter in law against her mother in law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. To, to, to literally say, And in fact, the word set to set a man against his father is closer in the Greek to make an alien of. So to take you as if you're no longer family, to make you a stranger from your own family. So Jesus is using a sword image, but notice he's not using it the way judges uses it. He's not slitting throats. He's presenting himself as the kind of message that if accepted might cost you the relationships that have meant so much to you. And to make sure we understand what he's saying, we read on, 37. He who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not, here it is, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life, for my sake, we'll find it. So Jesus has told you he come to spread a sword and that the way for you to participate in the sword is to take up your cross. Remember what I told you earlier? Jesus has presented a message in which the cross and the sword are equal. For Jesus, he has taken the sword out of the physical realm and moved it into the spiritual realm in a world that's clanking with swords. If you were standing in Jesus' world, it was easy to find someone carrying a sword. That was the world of the Roman Empire. And Jesus, no doubt, points at one, and, but says, it's not the way you guys think. See, you guys think I come to spread a sword physically. You guys are waiting on a Messiah to deliver you from Rome that's going to pick up a sword and kill. I'm here to bring a sword, all right, but not in the way you think. Because if you follow me, it'll be a sword that'll cost you your own life. It'll be a sword plunged into you, not into your enemy. The sword that I bring cuts you, not her. See, we are infatuated by carrying swords if it means we get to stab other people with them. But Jesus comes introducing Matthew 10 to a sword that stabs us, to a sword that severs whatever stands in the way of our relationship with who he is. And so Christ has not only made the sword which had been physical now spiritual or invisible, He makes the sword an instrument of our death instead of an instrument we get to use in your death. So pause for a moment and take that in. (laughs) This is already a very difficult passage. It'd be difficult if he didn't even use the word sword. I mean, even if he just said, hey man, if you follow me, Son against father, mom against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Your is going to be the people in your own house. You're going to have to pick up the possibility of your own death if you're going to follow me. If you love your life more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. If you refuse to pick up your instrument of death that works on you, not the instrument that works on your neighbor, the instrument that works on you, if you refuse to carry that, you're not worthy of me. If, 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 that was, if we didn't even have the sword part, if we just had that, we'd go, this is a toughie. Then when you put the sword in there, you realize that Jesus is taking that which has always been natural and making it spiritual and setting them up for the cross that is to come. Now, we also read things like this differently because we're on the other side of the cross. So when we read a verse in which Jesus talks about crosses, we think Calvary. We think Passion Week. And we have a right to because that's who we are. But his disciples don't think that. Because Passion Week hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't went to the cross. Losers die on crosses. Criminals die on crosses. Cursed men die on crosses. People forsaken by God die on crosses. And guess where you go after you die on a cross? The reason you die on a cross is because you're a stranger and a vagabond. You probably don't have any family. And the homeless get buried in Gehenna. where Because you don't get buried at all. You just get thrown into the place where the flame burns forever and the worm dies not and the birds eat your flesh, which was what made Jesus when Nicodemus asks for the body of Jesus so he can put him in a grave. That's a big deal because what they'd normally do is they take those bodies right off the cross, throw them in a cart, drag them over to the edge of the cliff that goes into Gehenna and flip it over and the body slides down into Gehenna where it burns with the other bodies and it's gone forever. Hebrews makes a big deal of that, by the way, when it says it did not allow his body to see corruption. And so Christ doesn't even get to go into that area in the way that others do. And so, but all of that's in the future. At the time Jesus says this, a cross is a mechanism by which you die. And I present to you that it is still a a mechanism by which you die. So it is Jesus showing us that the sword is another way of talking about the cross. However... This isn't easy to get. If you think it's difficult for you, you're on the other side of victory, man. You know how this story ends. You know he's, in three days he's going to come out of the grave. He's going to resurrect. He's going to ascend to heaven. Pentecost is coming. All this good stuff's coming. You've got a whole Bible ahead of you. It's good news. They don't have any of that. And so, confusion most likely abounds to the point that when they head into the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, if you have an extra tunic, sell it and buy a sword. Which is a strange statement. Because earlier in their ministry, they weren't even to go to take extra clothes with them. They didn't have time for any of that stuff. And here they are going into the garden, and Jesus goes, and buy a sword if you got one. And Peter says, we have two. Is that enough? And Jesus says, that's enough. And into the garden they go. Now you know the story of the garden of Gethsemane. And you know how Jesus prays, his worst, prays and sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If not, I'll take it. I'll drink it. He prays this over and over and over. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it's wrong for you to pray the same prayer twice because it's faithless. Because Jesus prays the same prayer all night over and over and over again in Gethsemane. And don't you dare call Jesus faithless. Because prayer is not to move God. Prayer is to move you. And Jesus has already admitted to the Father, hey, if there's another way to do this and this cup can pass, let it pass. And he comes back and prays it again and he comes back and prays it again, not because he's trying to get God to take the cup away, but because he's landing on drinking the cup. And that's prayer. It's me coming back to God. To, that was a freebie. That really didn't have anything to do with the sword, but that was, that's, there's that. So you go into the garden. Here comes Judas He who I kiss is the same one you should arrest. Judas kisses Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. Suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know this is Peter because of the other Gospels. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. There's never been a better opportunity to use the sword. And so this disciple who was told a moment ago, if you got an extra coat, buy one, sell it, buy a sword, pulls the sword because if you're not going to pull the sword now, when are you going to pull the sword? There's actual soldiers here with swords and they're here to arrest you. And we can't have you arrested. You're the one. And so the sword is pulled. He swings. I don't think he's swinging for the ear I think he's swinging to take off someone's head. No one goes into battle to take off ears. And as he's swinging to take off someone's head, they duck and there goes the ear. And we know that according to the gospel of Luke, Jesus reaches down into the dirt and he picks the ear up and he puts it back on the servant's head. And the last miracle Jesus performs before he goes to the cross is to heal his enemy. And if you ever needed to know what the cross is about, it's the healing of enemies. You are the first enemy. (laughs) Uh, everything in you that needs healed gets met at Calvary and every enemy you have gets to encounter the same Jesus at Calvary. And Jesus puts the ear back on the head. If you live by this sword, you're going to die by this sword. It's that great moment. that, That moment that I imagine that Jesus jumps in between the swinging sword and the next neck and puts his hand up and says, no. Another gospel says, permit even this. Allow even this to happen, which of course begs the question, why does Jesus have them buy swords on their way? And we talked about this when we were in our John study, but one pretty solid first century foundational footing you can use is the fact that we have found evidence that the Romans had passed law that if if a group of people were found with more than one sword, they could be considered insurrectionists. This gave Rome a lot of leeway in suppressing violence across the empire. I mean, Roman troops could be called out and and find a group of people with with at least two swords and suddenly they're an insurrectionist and the Roman army could mow them down. Um, So there's one pretty solid theory that Jesus has them take two swords so it can be fulfilled. In fact, one of the gospels says so that he was numbered with the transgressors. So by Jesus being in a group of insurrections while not holding a sword himself, he's numbered with those who are now guilty in the eyes of the Roman Empire. It's Jesus identifying with our guilt. That's a physical reason they carry swords. I think there's a spiritual reason. And I think it is that if you're going to tell someone, hey, put the sword up, if you live by it, you die by it. The only way you know whether or not you would pull the sword is if you have a sword to pull. Like it's really easy to go, I'm I'm anti-violence. I don't believe anybody ought to, until the power's in your side. And then you find out whether or not you were anti-violence or you were just mad you didn't have the power. Because there's a big difference, by the way. There's a big difference in being anti-violence and being the one who has all the power. Because most people that are anti-violent are just mad at the people that have the power and they think they could do better if they had it. What we really need is the right people. Because this is the kind of stuff we say. What we really need are the right people in power. Notice how when we talk about the systems of the world, we use the phrase in power. We even do it in America, a democratic republic. And we say the people in power. We can't, we're so married to the idea that whoever's at the top has the power. Jesus flips the power pyramid to show you that he who is at the bottom truly has the power because only the man at the bottom knows he can keep the sword sheathed. The other guy has to use it. It defines him. So Jesus says, if you live by that, it'll kill you. Live by that sword, you'll die by that sword. I think Matthew's given you a progression. Jesus came to bring a sword, Matthew 10. Peter uses a sword, confusing the physical with the spiritual, a problem that persists into this day. That we still confuse the physical power with the spiritual power. Why do you think Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds? Because even his churches thought the weapons we really need are carnal. If we just had the right weapons, we'd quit being persecuted. If we just had the right people in power, we'd be the winners. And Paul goes, you don't even understand the fight. You people think you could win if you had power. You don't even understand the fight. Your weapons are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So it still exists. Jesus warns him that a life protected by the sword will ultimately be a fruitless life. Live by it, die by it. When the weapons of our warfare are carnal, they kill. When the sword is spiritual, it leads to the kind of death that has a resurrection. And yes, I did intentionally put a question mark by the capitalized word spirit in there. So let me, let me reread that and tell you why. When the sword is spiritual, as in the sword is the Holy Spirit or the sword is just a spiritual sword, it leads to the kind of death that has a resurrection. We'll, we'll land at the end of that sentence in a second. Still deal, deal with that question mark. We do not know To me, this is a fascinating fact about Greek. The Greek writers didn't have a specific word for the Holy Spirit as opposed to your spirit. It's the Greek word pneuma. Most of the time, you just have to guess. (laughs) Like, you don't know for sure if it's your spirit he's talking about or if it's the holy spirit he's talking about we've become convinced a lot of times in english of which one it is because our translators love to capitalize god's name in the english and so where the translators thought it was the holy spirit they put a capital s paul didn't put capital anything that didn't exist he just writes pneuma So when Paul writes the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, all of us capitalize the S because we just assume that it's the sword of the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't say it's the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's almost unnecessarily redundant unless Paul doesn't mean capital S. And I don't think he does. I think he means the sword of the Little less the sword that's invisible, which is the Word of God. You see, the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, they're invisible. They're not carnal, as in they're not fleshly, they're spiritual. Little less. So I don't doubt that the Holy Spirit is part of the sword, but I'm not so sure Paul means the sword of the Holy Spirit, which is the Word of God, as much as he means. The the sword that you carry is invisible and you use it every time you open your mouth. Because when you get to Revelation, where is the sword? Out of the mouth of the one we follow. So as the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, then our our natural swords won't work. Our spiritual sword works in that it leads to the kind of death that has a resurrection because swords kill. But the sword that comes out of his mouth kills in a way that brings reformation, transformation, resurrection. Jesus, by taking it into himself, transforms whatever it is. Um, Consider, Goliath comes to David with a sword and a spear and a shield. And David approaches Goliath with a slingshot and a testimony, <laughs> you know, you uncircumcised Philistine, you come to me with a sword and spear. I come to you in the name of the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I have a covenant, you don't. And Goliath run comes towards David with the sword and the logistics of this are essentially that Goliath is a short Goliath fights in short combat when you're big, as Goliath is you are almost by default slow and while you're strong, your reach isn't very far. So David is a problem from the moment Goliath meets him because David shoots from a distance and the last thing you want to face when you need to punch close is someone with a reach. (laughs) And so David swings the slingshot over his head and Goliath never stands a chance. And David is so confident in his skills, he actually brings five rocks to the battlefield because he plans on shooting from such a distance he has time to fire off five shots if necessary. Goliath actually tries to cut the distance right at the point of contact. If you'll notice, the Bible says Goliath takes off running towards David because at the last minute, Goliath realizes, I brought a knife to a gunfight. Essentially is what happens in that battle. So for all intents and purposes, David's never really in trouble. When we use the analogy David and Goliath, what we ought to say, David and Goliath represents whenever someone with such hubris thinks they can destroy something smaller than them, but they don't understand what they're fighting. That's Goliath and David. It's not big guy versus little guy. It's, I think I've got talent I don't have <laughs> and I'm about to be cut down to size. And then strangely, as David drops Goliath, he reaches down and picks up Goliath's sword. In one of those interesting moments of biblical narrative, he drags that sword. It's got to be enormous for a guy that's based on Goliath's height is freakishly large. And David swings the sword over and boom, pops Goliath's head off. And then that skull becomes part of the lore of the story of Israel. So what Goliath brings to kill David actually becomes the thing that cuts off the head of David. Jesus is condemned to die and sold into death by a traitor. And what the enemy brings to the battlefield to destroy Jesus with, death, (laughs) Jesus takes into himself and crushes the head of the serpent, prophesied in the book of Genesis. So Christ picks up the sword of death and lops off the power of the enemy by taking death into himself so that w- death goes into Christ and what comes out of Christ is the life-giving spirit, resurrection power. So that death, which will come upon all of us is never the end. So he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil who, because for all of us who for all of our lives had been underneath the fear of death Hebrews says in Hebrews 2 so Jesus came to destroy the one that had the power of death that's like that's picking up Goliath's sword and dropping it over Goliath's head but then in an amazing turn takes the thing intended to destroy him I was going to say and recycles it but resurrects transforms it in himself um I don't really want to do this and I don't really have time to do this. So forgive me that this is going to be brief. It's 10 verses long. I don't want to take your night, but I do want to read Romans 13, one to 10. We've spent a lot of time in nine and 10, but I want to deal with a verse that has become the rallying cry for people who want to use swords. They've already got a misquote from Jesus they'll use. And then they take a Pauline passage out of context. So watch with me in Romans 13.1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So this has been a pro-government verse. Strangely, it's always pro-government from people who are really excited about the government. And it's ignored by people who aren't. Because if, like the founding fathers had taken this verse to mean what some people have it to mean, they could not have rebelled against George III. Because they would have not been able to to rebel against the governing authorities. I think you get yourself in trouble if you don't keep reading Paul. Because Paul's heading somewhere. But on his way there, he's going to bring the sword in. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, they're a terror to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he's God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. He's God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So Paul presents a natural sword in the hands of kings. He doesn't present a spiritual sword in the hand of God here. He presents a natural sword in the hands of kings and says what they do is they execute justice against people that do wrong. Is Paul saying that every authority on the earth is godly? You got to be careful how you read this because in one context, you could read it and go, Paul says that if you're in charge, God picked you. That's caused people to say God picked your leader. No matter who it is, God picked them. I mean, even if you have elections, elections, Like whoever the people elect, God picked them. Well, if God picked them and you really believe God picked them, then you should act like God picked them, even if you don't like their politics or you don't like who they are. Or maybe Paul means something else. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake because of you this, because of this pay taxes because they're God's ministers attending, continue to this very thing render therefore to all their due. And there's the rub right there. There's where Paul gets a bit subversive. Give them what they're due. Taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. Okay. You let the government do what they do. You let the rulers of this earth do what they do. They're going to pick up swords. You don't get to. What you do is you give honor to whom honor, custom to whose custom, but what you do is you love one another because he who loved one another has fulfilled the law. Nine, what are the commandments? Adultery, murder, stealing, false witness, covet. If there's any other one, it's summed up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't harm their neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to really fulfill the law? Love one another. So in effect, Paul doesn't, Paul sees the sword in the natural realm as part of the powers that be. He goes, they're there. They, they execute justice. They do their thing. As for you, you owe no man anything but to love. Because this is your responsibility in the middle of this. Revelation 1.16. And here's where we'll be a little bit next week. He had in his right hand, seven stars. And here, this is going to repeat over and over in Revelation. Out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword. This is Jesus. Last screen. Our sword is spiritual. Using it will bring about the kind of death that leads to life. If your words don't bring life, they cannot be the word, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. So this is, you know, there's just no way to do that right. And then try to introduce the word of God in the same lesson. We needed to deal with the connotations of the sword. We haven't got to the bottom of it. We might've given more questions than answers. Then that's a good study. Then you leave, you haven't figured everything out. You got a few more things to work on, a few more things to wrestle with, a few more things to say, hmm, not sure where to land there. And that's a good thing. But consider what Jesus does to change the identity of the sword, to spiritualize what had been natural, to put into the cross what had only went into people's guts and across their throat, and to make it an instrument of the spirit, of the realm of the invisible, instead of the realm of the natural. Let's think about that. Let's pray. God, you are good. Thank you for all you are doing in this study. Thank you for what you are showing us, even when where we land is maybe with a couple of more questions. That's a great place. We thank you that you are working on us as we wrestle out your word. And we thank you that the sword of the spirit is at work in us in the way that it is at work in you. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen.